Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, what the fuckers? Let's do this. Are we doing it? All right. Well, look, let me tell you the situation. Uh, this is WTF. I am Mark Marin. I am in a car. It is pouring out. I'm driving through the rain. I'm driving into the desert, to Desert Hot Springs. I'm going to talk to Paul Krasner. He's one of the last remaining counterculture Buddhas from back in the 50s, back in the 60s, back in the 70s. Paul Krasner has been you know, at the sidelines and in the front lines of American counterculture since it started. I, I Look, I was born in 1963. By 1969, I was what? six or seven but i remember everything coming out of the tv was going into my head the protests the hippie movement the music that was around me the the i seeing like long-haired kids in the street there was always part of me that gravitated towards that mad magazine was insanely important to me that for some reason even as a kid i knew that that was the direction my life would take and throughout my my childhood and my adolescence i mean i had a mini bike I think in 19, what do you say, 70, 71? You know, how old was I? 10, 9 or 10? I had a mini bike and I made my parents buy me an American flag helmet like Dennis Hopper wore in Easy Rider. Not because I had seen Easy Rider or had any real sense of what the movie meant, but because I had a poster that I saw in New York on a trip that I took with my grandmother of Dennis Hopper flipping the bird on his bike. And I saw, I also had a poster of, uh, of the whole cast of Easy Rider with Peter Fonda in that helmet. And a lot of this, I can only attribute my interest to the chaos and mystery that really defined the 60s was my grandmother's neighbor, the Newarks, had a son named Carrie, who I used to go over there. And I'd go in his room, and it was just a collage of everything that had anything to do with the 60s at that time. He had a beard and mustache and long hair. There were posters all over the place of everybody, the Easy Rider poster included. And I just thought it was fucking fascinating, and I knew that that would define my life. I wasn't sure how, but my fascination remained. I always was compelled towards 60s counterculture, and then later in college into the Beatniks, and then later into Lenny Bruce. But I always had a fascination with Timothy Leary because I remember seeing him around when I was a kid. A lot of this had to do with Mad Magazine as well. Drugs were part of it. Long hair was part of it. Protest was part of it. But I really just saw images, and I only knew from the images that that is what I wanted to be part of. I, I'm not even sure what it was. I'm not even completely sure now. The history, you know, my sense of history is, is, is relative to the fact that I didn't live through it. I, I gleaned it. I was fascinated by it. I remember reading, uh, you know, Tom Wolfe's uh, electric Kool-Aid acid test about the sort of weird two camps of, of acid in the 60s. You know, Leary being one, Kesey being the other. But I mean, that whole sort of like Mary Prankster scene with Ken Kesey, the guy who wrote One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. You know, he had a band of, of clowns called the Merry Pranksters that drove around in this psychedelic bus. And this was at the beginning of Acid. And, of course, Leary was running his own sort of, you know, Zen retreat at the, I believe, the, the home of some wealthy person, uh, you know, doing Acid that way. And there's this great confrontation between Leary and, uh, and, and, and Kesey, who showed up. You know, Kesey, of course, showed up with his, you know, Dayglow clowns, 
you know, wanting some acid up at the uh, Zen Retreat in upstate New York. I, I don't know the details, but I'm excited to talk to Krasner about it. Krasner was also uh, the co-founder of the Yippie Movement with Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman and was, you know, best friends with Abby Hoffman. And all this stuff is just pictures and fragments. You know, I had, you know, steal this book. I, you know, I knew about Abby Hoffman. I was fascinated with Abby Hoffman. And when he came out from being underground, I went to see him speak when I was in high school, but not really having a sense of the whole picture of what it all meant. And then, of course, Paul Krasner was a, a, a sort of protege of Lenny Bruce. I mean, he was, he edited Lenny Bruce's autobiography. Uh, How to Talk Dirty and Influence People, which is an important book for any comic to read. And he really took the spirit of Lenny and moved it into print by uh, creating The Realist, which was a a sort of uh, uh, a zine at the time, a satire zine. But I think that what's important for me to understand when I talk to Paul is just the thread that runs from Lenny and Bebop, you know, through the beatniks and through the 60s and on into the 70s and 80s. With uh, in terms of activism and protest and the, the power and place that satire has in that. Because there are definitely two camps of activism. There are pranksters and clowns and, and people who do the big drama. And there are people that just chip away. They lobby, they work on legislation, they run for office. But it seems to me that there is a thread that runs from Lenny Bruce through Krasner on into the, the hippie movement, into the yippie movement, into the pranksters, into acid culture, on into the protests against Reagan. And, you know, and even now, though the power of it is lessened. You, uh, you know, Krasner recently wrote a piece about John Stewart, Glenn Beck, and Abby Hoffman that I'm interested to talk to him about. It's the evolution and also the devolving of activism and what it means and, and what it means to actually fight hypocrisy and fight the power and fight the, the forces that, that, that deny us our freedom. I'm a little nervous, but I'm very happy that, you know, I know Paul a bit. You know, we've, uh, we've worked on shows together. We've, we've hung out a little bit together over the years. He's very lucid. I have no idea what to expect. I am driving through the desert. It's pouring out. I'd like to think I'm risking my life for this, but there are just some things that, that, that bother me directly that, that have sort of stuck in my craw over the years is that the 60s, and what the yippies and the hippies and that movement meant have really been trivialized and ridiculed and marginalized, you know, and, and sort of, you know, minimized uh, culturally and, and through the media as, as just this, a bunch of, you know, you know, goofballs, a bunch of tie-dyed idiots who stood for nothing. And, you know, in 1968, the Democratic National Convention, when the shit went down, you know, Abby Hoffman was there. He was one of the Chicago Seven. Krasner was at the trial. I mean, this was real deal shit. These people were fighting for some serious causes to stop a war and redefine you know, what freedom means and what the power of the voice of the people means. I mean, these were important times. You know, progress was made. A war was stifled. And Paul was there at the beginning. And, and, and I just, I, I just want to sit and listen. Yeah, I want to learn about this because I can't sit there and go, okay, tell me about this. This happened in 1960. Because you know me, I don't do that kind of research. But I do have an idea. It never really dawned on me until yesterday when I was looking through Paul's stuff. Yeah, I want to talk to him about that famous realist piece about, uh, you know, LBJ skull fucking or neck fucking the wound on the corpse of JFK as they were flying the body back to uh, Washington and how that became... Uh, true to some people that it was assumed to be true 
Uh, I want to talk to him about Kesey. I want to talk to him about a lot of stuff. But what I realize is that the tone that Lenny Bruce set with his comedy in terms of the fight you know, for First Amendment freedom really set the tone of a certain type of activism and protest that still exists today and is constantly being attacked by centrist, pseudo-left-leaning people, by you know, mocking it and saying it has no effect, and, of course, by the right, who literally are trying to erase it to this day by saying that the Tea Party movement is something akin to the grassroots movement of the 60s. They're just trying to erase what it meant, what the 60s meant, what Lenny Bruce meant, what acid meant, what the protests uh, at the 1968 Democratic Convention meant. This stuff is far away from us, but it is in my lifetime, and times have changed drastically. But something remains of the spirit of that, and something was important there that maybe we may risk losing it completely. And I just want to trace that thread. I hope Paul's up for it. I also feel like I'm running away, running to the desert, seeking some wisdom. I was actually going to do this with Shecky Green, who lives in Palm Springs. But I think that Krasner's, Krasner's my, uh, you know, he's one of those secret guides I have in my life. Uh, I didn't realize it until yesterday. But I don't know what the hell he's doing in Desert Hot Springs. I guess I'll talk to him about that too. All right, well, you can hear the rain. It's like hard for me to see. Let's, uh, let's get to Paul's house. So I, uh, I drove through the desert, the desert hot springs, to the home of uh, Paul Krasner, the, the Buddha in the desert at this point. And what, what are you doing out here? I mean, I, I understand that uh, there are problems in the world, but what are you doing here? Uh, Desert Hot Springs. Are you are you are you underground? Have you decided to go underground, even though you didn't have to? It's as if. I, I mean, I I am a hermit. <laughs> yeah, uh, and we want to have a convention, but nobody will come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, but I was living uh, in uh, Venice Beach and loved it. But the rent get uh, got higher every year. It seemed like every month, and uh, it was very noisy. And uh, we found this great place. Uh, Nancy found it on the internet and uh, moved here, and we're old enough that we got a, um, uh, you've seen the ads for reverse mortgages? Yeah. It's one of the few good things the government has done. What does that mean, a reverse mortgage? Well, you stop paying a monthly mortgage rate, uh, you have to be 62 at least, and, uh, and they send you a little check every month, which covers our car payment, <laughs> and then only have to pay the home tax and uh, the uh, insurance tax uh-huh. for, for the, and so, um, it's it it's a very nice thing to happen. Yeah, and uh, and there's no limit. Yeah. We can live to be 110 and still get that check every month. Well, I hope you do live to be 110. You're certainly outliving many of your peers. Uh-huh. Well, you know, when I was going yeah. over the stuff, I you know, because I've known you on and off for for years, and I've known of you and, and what you've done. And, you know, there's a lot. Now, look, I was born in 1963. I was two months old when Kennedy got killed. Uh By the time 1969 came around, I was about, you know, six or seven years old. And my grandmother had a neighbor who had a hippie kid. And, you know, I went into his room and I knew that the posters on the wall and everything in that room was going to map my future. Uh But I did not live through it. 
uh, as you did. And as I did some research last night, you know, I'd always known that, you know, you had a relationship with Lenny Bruce, that you were there. You've been at the, you know, in the front lines of American counterculture since its modern incarnation, really, and, and probably responsible for defining much of it. Well, it was fortunate having a magazine because, you know, you could send, sit down with Ken Kesey for a few hours and have an interview. Yeah. Uh, and, and a very interesting one. We, yeah. We both uh, had hash tea, and, and then we had electric type. This was before uh, computers. We each had an electric typewriter, and we would, uh, without speaking, we, I would type a question, and he would uh, type the answer. Yeah. Because he was a writer, and he wanted to choose his words carefully. That's interesting. And so um, uh, if I hadn't had a magazine, that might never have come back, uh, come about. But it seems to me that, like, we'll talk about the realist, but, like, I was just in your bathroom here at the Desert Home, uh-huh. and there's a, you know, a pamphlet or a flyer or a program on the wall for a, a violin recital from 1939, and there's a six-year-old Paul Krasner playing at Carnegie Hall. Yes. What happened, Paul? Um, Why did you put down the violin? You didn't want to have the Henny Youngman career? Uh-huh. Well, actually, uh, uh, I, I, was, I was playing there at, uh, at Carnegie Hall, but, and, and I woke up at, at, uh, when I was there because, you know, I had practiced myself out of my childhood, and I was kind of playing by rote with my eyes closed. Yeah. And my left leg itched, and uh, I knew I wasn't supposed to scratch it. That's uh-huh. not professional. Uh-huh. And yet, you know, it got uh, uh, to be a fierce ish itch. <laughs> and so there's a thing, what I call the uh, hidden laboratory of alternatives. Mm-hmm. And up from my subconscious, uh, I got the image of myself standing on my left leg and scratching it with my right foot. <laughs> and, uh, and it worked without missing a note of the Vivaldi concerto in A minor. Uh-huh. And so, uh, uh, and the audience laughed. That was the sound I woke up to, and I woke up to it with uh, six-year-old sophistication, but born-again innocence, uh-huh. and uh, which made me see the world in a different way. Uh, and also, I was hooked. I, you know, that first laugh was free. But, yeah. But it was such a because you know an individual laugh. You know, uh, when you start early, and mm-hmm. you know if you can make your your, your parents laugh then they're not mad at you for that moment. So you can see them grimacing, trying to hold back. Yeah. And, so, and so you knew that uh, nobody's mad at you if they're laughing. And that's also the same moment you're, where they realize they have no control over you. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, they, <laughs> they adapted to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it's a matter of, uh, it was a matter of sp- uh, con- conscious evolution. I could, uh, you know, I, I was very, very... Uh, interested in the concept of infinite infinity infinite time and space and the more i thought about it it would give me a headache <laughs> because yeah. you know all right let's say it's finite uh then what's after that you yeah. know or, or and so and this um, happened in that moment when you were six years old no no but i but i grew up into it as i heard uh, uh, uh as i saw people uh get angry over uh, uh tiny things or, or depressed over yeah. tiny things and, and and I thought of this kind of uh, infinite time and space, and and it gave me a, a sense of of what could be called cosmic awareness. Okay, well, uh, like let's let's evolve into that though. So you know, the, so you gave up violin as a young man, and then when when you you know became friends with Lenny Bruce, I mean, you were already doing comedy. Uh, yeah, when I, f- when I first started, in fact. What year was that when you started doing stand-up? Um, oh, let's see. It was, um, 
when I was still in college, actually. So uh -huh. it was like... Where um, were you in college? Uh, so it was like um, 19... early 50s. And where were you in college? Uh, City College in New York. And uh, there was a group called the um, uh, CCSO, City College Service Organization. And we would go to hospitals and army camps and perform. And, um, and I remember what inspired me. There was a, 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 a comic named Monty something, and he was very standard. And he did a whole bit about uh, seducing, you know, trust me, trust me, and then you do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can still trust me, trust yeah. me. And I was offended by, by the aspect of deception. And, and that, he was, that his joke was about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, that seduction was, was lying in order to get laid. <laughs> that offended you? It did. It was like the lowest form of rape. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so uh, I, 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 I said I, I wanted to make people laugh, but that's stuff that I believed in and stuff that I felt strongly about. And, uh, but I, that, and I took my violin out of the closet then and, and used it as a prop. So you I did? Have, my first joke was, uh, what did... Eve say to Adam, uh, and then I would play on the violin. Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me. Uh huh. You know, and then I. But then I developed. It Did that to, work? Uh, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Um, so, do you remember the scene at that time? Were you playing clubs, or was it really specific to this college? No, scene? it was. It was specific then, and then I started, and then when I was doing stuff for Mad Magazine, uh, uh, I, would write, I would write a script and then they would assign it to an artist. Oh, so you, and that was the original Mad. So it was uh, a comic book then. No, then it, at this point it was Mad Magazine. So it was a magazine. Yeah, and, um, and Bill Gaines, the publisher, invited me to perform at the Christmas party. Mm -hmm. And that was a thrill. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, and then I got a New Year's Eve gig. Uh, then some, some guy uh, arranged it for me. And I was there, and I was doing that, and then they were starting to yell, get off the stage, we want to dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had enough empathy that I said, yeah, you're right. And I walked off the stage. I didn't even ask to get paid. At midnight, I was on the subway with a bunch of drunks. Yeah, you didn't fight and, them, huh? Uh, and I, you know, I... Um, well, I mean, they were right. They wanted to dance. They didn't want to have some, you know, some freak with a yeah, little I, violin. I know, but a, a, another type of person would have said, fuck you, I'm not done yet. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess, but I, uh, <laughs> it wasn't your bag. I wasn't comfortable about it. And so, and my father kept saying, oh, you're a quitter. You're a quitter. Oh God. But, I didn't mean uh, to reopen an old wound. But I didn't, I didn't like the comedy clubs cause I didn't like the smoke and the drinking mm -hmm. the cigarette smoke. And, um, uh, I started, uh, in 1961 at, at, uh, the village gate. In New York, I worked there toward the end of it. Yeah, uh -huh. was that uh, was uh, Art DeLugoff still yeah. the guy? Yes, yes, yes. How do you like that? Uh, it was. It what were was, you doing? Stand up there? Yeah. And was a was it a lounge show? Was there musicians as well? And uh, no, it was just me. I mean, I I rented the place and then I, that's where I met you at the Village Gate. I worked I, there with you when it was back. They would started doing comedy again, probably in the um, in the late eighties, early nineties. And that's where I saw you, uh -huh. and you were on stage, and that's where that line you said, I, I remind you of before, that, that struck me as, as so witty on so many levels that I'll never forget it, that a, uh, a colonic is an enema with an ideology. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but so at that time, all right, so you're at the Village Gate, it's 1961-62. Now, what, what's the scene in the Village at that time? It was swirling, Yeah, you know, because the folk singers were coming in, yeah. there were the... Uh, Besides Lenny, there was uh, Mort Saul. You know, there were uh, they were mostly over here, though, weren't w Woody they? Woody Allen, San Francisco. 
Well, Warsaw was in San Francisco. Woody Allen was in New York a lot. And so he was. That, so you saw, like, you saw Dylan come up and and, and yeah, Woody Allen. It was that. It was that. You know, it was a very exciting time. Yeah. And and uh, uh, you know, we didn't know it was even had a title like counterculture, but it was blossoming. Yeah. And uh, that, the beats had already sort of. They were sort of in full swing or almost on their way out. They were. I think we were the, in, in terms of the evolution of, yeah. of counterculture, which has always been. You know, yeah. there were the flappers and and the uh, bohemians, yeah, and the beats, and, yeah, and, and the hippies kind of came next. You know, and after right, the so hippies came the uh, the uh, punk, and then the hip hop. So but this it, is right at the right between the beats and the hippies. Yes, about a five or six year period. I was on the cusp. And now, when when you saw now, what was the first experience with Lenny? Oh, okay. So, well, when I started The Realist, yeah. um, the first subscriber was Steve Allen. Uh-huh. And he sent out a bunch of subscriptions, and uh, Lenny was one of them. And it, it was his favorite magazine, and he sent out a bunch of subscriptions to others. You know, and that's how them, I didn't have any advertising. So The Realist became, he really came outside of Lenny Bruce. Oh, well, yeah. It was all you. Word, word of mouth. And what was, it, what was the agenda of The Realist in your mind? What, what, what was your manifesto? Uh, let's see, the... the, the uh, the 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 banner said free thought criticism and satire mm-hmm. but uh i decided uh that i didn't want to people didn't even know something was satirical until they realized so i didn't want to provide uh, i didn't want to um prevent them from bury the from, lead from the pleasure of yeah. discerning for themselves what was uh literal truth and what was a satirical extension of the truth uh-huh. and um uh, and so when Lenny got, he was mostly in L.A., but when, in 1959, when he got to New York uh, to play Town Hall, yeah. he um, uh, called me because we had never met. And so I went to, it was the Hotel America in Times Square. He yeah. really was a patriotic guy. You oh, know? Yeah, and right. joked, yeah. In San Francisco, he would stay at the Swiss American. Yeah. On purpose? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He liked that. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, so um, I had just uh, published an interview with Dr. Albert Ellis, who was a, uh, a writer about, a very progressive writer about sexuality, and he was a, a psychotherapist. He kind of created uh, rational therapy and then uh, extended that to rational emotive therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so in the interview, I mentioned something. He said, well, that's too fucking bad. And I, and, and I said, uh, you know... Um, do you? He and then he told me about his program, yeah. uh, his his concept. He said he thought that if fucking is a good thing, uh, then you should say to somebody if you want to insult them, unfuck you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this was and, Lenny or Ellis? No, this was Doctor yeah. Ellis. Yeah. And and so Lenny loved that. He said, "Can you get away with this? Is this on newsstands?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I explained to him that just recently, then the Supreme Court had defined obscenity as. Um, a you know it had to uh, uh, had to arouse the prurient interest among other things you know right. it, it had to uh, give you a hard on uh, yeah that's what it came to I mean but Lenny said prurient interest what's that and he took out a huge unabridged dictionary from his suitcase that was on his bed in a hotel room and we looked it up and he said to itch I think that was one of the first mm-hmm. he says is that like you know in the novelty store yeah. they give you itching powder yeah yeah. Uh, and then I said, no, essentially it means getting you horny. Yeah. And so he was intrigued by this because he had been using frig, you know, that kind of euphemism on stage. So this was before the shit hit the fan with him. Yeah, yeah. So this that, was part of his, he, like, you know, the evolution of Lenny Bruce from a sort of, a, you know, mimic, 
uh, you know, sort of you know, standard comic. James Cagney. Yeah, into whatever he became. You know, yeah. you were sort of, this was the beginning of that, that his, his interests were changing. Yeah, well, his, his, um, he was talking about, uh, I mean, he broke through the tradition of the old school comics who did mother-in-law jokes yeah. and airplane food right. and Chinese drivers. Yeah. Uh, and Still a, a popular and topic a, now. Uh, oh, yes, it's coming back. Uh -huh. But, you know, they're driving us to distraction. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, um, he, um, and so he asked me if I could give out copies of that issue, uh, uh, the Albert Ellis issue, uh -huh. uh, uh, in front of Town Hall that night where he was performing. And he brought it on stage and talked about it. And they threatened that they would never have him perform there again. He said, oh, they will. They made too much money. Uh, you know, it was yeah, a yeah. sold-out show. And he was right. They did have him back. Uh, and so after that, he, you know, so he was he was just uh, 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 obeying the laws, right? Uh, uh, and and uh, and but but the obscenity charges uh, w were a smokescreen because they couldn't charge him with blasphemy, and but that's the reason. Uh, that so it was the Catholic Church was you know, uh, behind uh, it, especially in Chicago. You know, at, yeah. at the trial in Chicago, uh, uh, it, one time it was Ash Wednesday. And every single one of the jurors had on an ash on yeah. their forehead. The bailiff did, the, the, the uh, prosecutor did. Uh -huh. And uh, it was like a Lenny fantasy there. <laughs> did you, were you there? Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, and that was from a place called the Gate of Horn where he got busted. And the vice uh, squad chief uh, came and told the owner, you know, if you let that man talk about the Pope again, you know, we're going to take away your liquor license. You know, so clubs were afraid to hire him, and, and Lenny said, you know, if you get busted in town A, then you go to town B, and they want to arrest you there. Now, when you hung out with this guy, I mean, obviously you were both sort of informing each other, you know, and your own art. I mean, you were writing this, this magazine, and, and he was taking these chances and pushing the, the First Amendment to, to get for a point, and he was aware of this. Yeah. Now, when when you sort of hung out with him, I, I don't it's hard for me to believe. And I think it's hard for a lot of people to put Lenny into context or even understand, you know, how important what you were doing, and what Lenny was doing at this time, because, you know, he gets trivialized. Everyone just sort of mentions Lenny Bruce. But I mean, you know, when you guys are in this, I mean, what what is the, the, the feeling in the room? I mean, you know, I picture Lenny, you know, as as a manic sort of, uh, you know, careless in a way, a little reckless a personality who was who was really you know half you know thriving on you know putting his ass on the line like this, but also like really not knowing what the what the uh, results were going to be. Well, after the arrest started, he kind of knew. <laughs> uh, you know, he saw the pattern. Right. Uh, but uh, um, I mean, it, the thing is that nowadays people hear of him like a free association. They think Lenny Bruce obscenity. Yeah. Language. Uh, when he talked about uh, nuclear testing, he talked about t teachers' low salaries and as opposed to show business high salaries. Uh, he talked ab about abortion rights. He talked about uh, um, legalizing marijuana. Uh, so he, it was a whole new world uh, of, of subjects that had been taboo. Uh, and so... Uh, so he knew, you know, what he wanted, he wasn't trying, he was only trying to uh, perform on stage with the same freedom that he had in his own living room. I mean, that was his goal, uh, as my goal was, which was to, uh, uh, to communicate without compromise. But what kind of guy was he, and, and, and how old were you when you were hanging out with him? Uh, let's see, um, I was 27, and he was, I think, five years older than me. Really? So you were young guys, and yeah. this was exciting? 
Oh yeah, he well, he met me. He said, "Come on, you're just a front. There's some you have some uh, uh, gar- gargantua locked up in your closet who's really putting out the magazine, <laughs> yeah. and you're just a front." <laughs> well, it's just interesting to me that, like, you know, because obviously, you know, as a comic myself and knowing other comics in my life and the kind of lives we lead, you've you've somehow taken care of yourself. You know, you're, you're still alive. You're lucid, and and it's always been. I guess I romanticize, you know, the life of Lenny Bruce as being something, you know, I- incredibly chaotic. And 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 full of drama, and that you know, as you know, I have no sense of him, you know, as a, as a person sitting across from another person, uh-huh. or, or having these intimate moments that you had with him. Uh, you know, was he frightened? Was he, you know, did, did did he realize that you know that everything was changing around him? Uh, well, he's he 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 didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to be the the uh, victim, uh, you, you know, mm-hmm. and and uh, he was. He was, um, you know, I remember once being in an elevator in, in, a, in a hotel he was staying at, and um, he and he was very paranoid. You know, he had uh, wires going under the rug. He wanted to tape uh, uh, somebody from the, you know. He was really paranoid, but it was just justified because they were after him. Yeah. And so he, um, he would, we were in the elevator, and he said something like, 17, please. And we're suddenly on like the 25th floor. And and he said, oh, I'm sorry, I, I, I said 17, maybe I didn't say it loud enough. You mm-hmm. know, he, mm-hmm. he took the blame for it. And so she, the elevator operator, took us down to 17, and he gave her like a $10 tip uh-huh. for that, you know? Yeah. Uh, because he didn't want her to feel bad. <laughs> I mean, so, so little things like that and, uh, were meaningful. And what about, like, the, the, you stayed away from the narcotics yourself? I wasn't doing any drugs then, and, and I do remember one time. And Lenny and I had an unspoken agreement that because it was against the law, what he, uh, uh, what he would, uh, that, that there wouldn't be anything about that in the book. Right. You know, I, I talked about that. What it, was he mostly doing, Benzedrine? Uh, he was, let's see, he would, one time he had contacts in New York, and he had, a lot of it was prescription. So um, the, the lauded was, what, was one of the things he oh, did. Oh, so he was already into the opiates. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, be, uh, he um, so he would send a telegram to uh, a friend in New York and saying, "The Lord is in the sky" or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And they and this prescription would come by mail. Uh huh. Um, and so, um, and at one point, I you know he, he he threw up at one point, and I and I and I said to him, um, "You know, you're such a free form guy in your life and in your uh, uh, performances." And, and and yet, y- you know, you're kind of, in effect, a, s- a slave to dope. Yeah. Which is a dumb thing for me to do, but I had, like, a really naive streak, too. Yeah. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, he said, and, 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 and you're addicted to food. You know, oh, I'm so hungry now, I need a fix. Uh-huh. He said, you're going to just uh, uh, say that you picked me up in the alley and, and, and saved my life, and you're going to talk about that at literary parties. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, uh, Lenny, no, I, I, you know. He said, all right, I want you to take a lie detector test. And I said, look, if you can't trust me, um, uh, 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 we can't work together. And I left. I came back to New York and um, got a telegram from him as if we had been divorced. Please, Daddy, uh, can't we try again? Uh-huh. You know, that kind of thing. So did you get a sense that, you know, that he was going to go down like he went down? I mean, did, was there a point where it got so out of control that you realized that you'd, you had lost him somehow? Well, um, I remember in that, in that December, it was 61 or 62, uh, when he got busted at uh, the Gate of uh, Horn in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I flew to Chicago, and he was on stage, and um, he he saw me come in, and uh, and he heard me laugh at we, uh, uh, and uh, which was just like his laugh, kind of just one big ha, uh, and um, and he, uh, but he was saying to the audience then. I want all of you to take a lie detector test. Yeah. So he had ex- expanded uh, uh, the, his, his the request of me. Yeah. You know, and I, I was paranoid, too, because I believed that he meant it literally. He might have just said that. You know, we yeah. weren't going to actually just get, you know, get a, uh, um, what do you call it? A what was his fear, light? that you would rat him out? Uh, did I, did I uh, in effect, yeah. 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 And, and it was understandable because I was so naive in asking him about drugs, you know. Right. But so then we got to talking to it about it, uh, yeah. uh, and he would say things like, uh, you know, it's like kissing God. And I said, okay, right, yeah, I'm yeah. not going to argue with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like kissing God as it kills you. Uh, well, yeah, but uh, uh, he didn't think it was killing him. Uh, the, his last, um, I tracked it down and find, and, uh, the, because there was uh, some heroin going around at the time, which was not... Um, uh, stepped on. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it was relatively more pure than was yeah. usually sold. Yeah. And uh, so there was suspicion that he had, you know, been killed. Got a hot shot. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, and, and wanted to know who was behind it. And I tried to track that down, and I finally found out from his mother, Sally Marr. Yeah. And, and we were there with her, um, it would have been Lenny's stepfather, her, yeah. her husband. Uh, and she was tell- talking to him about that, uh, about who, who, got Lenny that stash. Yeah. And she said to him, it's okay, don't feel bad. Lenny would have done the same for you. <laughs> so his stepfather is the, it was the dealer. He's dead now, so I can say it. Yeah. Who, uh, um, who, who, who uh, gave it to him or sold it to him. It was too good. Is uh, what it was. He didn't apparently, know. He didn't right. know it was cut. I, that it wasn't, wasn't cut. cut. Yeah, right. I, I'm sorry. I was. I was. Oh, think, right. I was thinking about my penis. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's just interesting to me that like I guess the the broader you know topic you know in in terms of you know certain victories were won by by you and Lenny in the sense that you know the First Amendment you know the parameters of it became you know more clear. And that, you know, I think certain freedoms were won, don't you, through the struggle of Lenny Bruce and through what you guys were doing with the realists that, that you, you pushed the line. Well, you know, you we b- don't know a single comedian who uh, uh, is afraid to say stuff on stage because he might get arrested. Right. So I heard of one, a conservative comic, it might have been in Vegas, I'm not sure, where he did some joke uh, and it had to do in... Uh, a circuitous way about uh, assassinating Hillary Clinton. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah and yeah. somebody complained and a letter to the editor and somebody and the Secret Service approached him. Sure. And they told him that he should not do that joke again. Right. And uh, that's the only thing I've heard uh, along those lines. And that and that's uh, of a different uh, uh, character. Uh, but I think that's interesting is that years uh, later that, you know what? Now, Playboy was very supportive of right. of cutting edge satirists, uh-huh. and there were guys in the seventies along with you uh, that you know, were doing some pretty pretty hard you know core shit. Yeah, and Hefner was into it because Hefner saw the fight for First Amendment right freedom, right. so he could you know push the envelope with boobs, right? And that there was a, there, that that most of the First Amendment issues around the sixties and seventies were about uh, profanity and about TNA. Correct. Right. And in fact, that, that and Hefner, as much as he admired uh, Lenny, uh, but he still tried to keep the magazine at some uh, uh, middle level so that 
uh, at that point, um, remember pubic hair? Uh-huh. Well, they wouldn't show any. It was airbrushed off. Right. Now, they don't have to airbrush it off because yeah, all no of those women anymore. are shaving their pussies. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No one's so. got it anymore. <laughs> and also, I think that you established some credibility in terms of the power of satire, you know, in writing that line between reality and truth with the, uh-huh. uh, with the piece on the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. That, you know, the fact that, and I don't know that people know that story, but you published a story. What was it? What It was a specific satire of a book at the time, correct? Yeah, it was uh, by William Manchester titled The Death of a President. Uh, and it, it was supposed to be published in 1967. Um, uh, first uh, serialized in Look Magazine and then published. And, um, but it was a pro- it, was, it was an authorized biography. And Bobby Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy uh, uh, refused to let it, be printed there. The, you know, the, there were rumors it had something to do with, with Lyndon Johnson. And so I tried uh, with my contacts in the publishing industry to get a copy of the original manuscript, but I couldn't. So I was forced to write it myself. And, and it, it, was, it was an exercise in, I didn't know the official name for that, apocrypha. And I, I just tried to nurture the, um, the incredible in, in a credible context. And so... Uh, established it uh, uh, with like like the onions of a layer, you know, starting off with some total truth, like Lyndon Johnson had called Jack Kennedy's father, this was during the primaries, a, uh, a, Nazi, a Nazi sympathizer, mm-hmm. which is what he was when he was uh, the ambassador to England. Yeah. And um, I'm sure he'd like to see himself just as a businessman. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Y- you know, selling uh, yeah. liquor with the mafia. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and so um, he... Um, and, and so I would, I, I started with that, and then I would work my way to things that the media people knew, but mm-hmm. the general public didn't, like the affair with Marilyn Monroe. Right. And so that kind of spread around, word of mouth. Um, and then where I made up stuff totally, but by this time, there was enough verisimilitude that it was like, I was... I was Credible. To, I, yeah, so I wanted, I was trying to seduce the readers yeah. uh, in, in to, into just... You know, uh, believing, uh, be, it. yeah, or at least being stunned by it because yeah. it, it, everything else worked. You know, and so there were people who did believe that this moment of of um, of necrophilia, presidential necrophilia, uh, quoting Jackie, um, say, saying at one point uh, that she walked in. Uh, this was on Air Force One, and and she walked into this uh, part of the plane where she saw Lyndon Johnson. Um, uh, leaning over the corpse of Kennedy and moving in a uh, kind of strange way. And Jackie at first thought that it was uh, some kind of Indian ritual that because he had worked with Indians uh, mm-hmm. as a senator, you know, before he went into politics, uh, LBJ did. And then she said, and then I realized that there's only one way to say this. He was fucking my husband in the throat wound. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, 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 and then I had... Quotes from the um, uh, Warren Commission report uh-huh. questions. You know, was there semen in the uh, bullet hole? Uh-huh. And this became a, 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 a meme in the culture that, that people believed. It did. It did. Some, uh, some people even visualized it and thought they saw it. You know, it oh, was, really? uh, I mean, they, a lot of people believe. I was shocked. I mean, very intelligent people um, believed it. I mean, a, you know, a, a Neiman Fellowship journalist uh, Believed it. Uh, I, I was lawyers believed it. Uh, 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 Daniel Ellsberg believed it, and I asked him uh, 
uh, I, I said, you believe that because you know that kind of stuff goes on with the CIA. He says, I believed it because I wanted to. Right. You know, so people believed it if only for a moment. But in that moment, they uh, realized that they had uh, admitted to themselves that Lyndon Johnson was, was uh, crazy. You know, the leader of the Western world. Right. But as a satirical point that, you know, what it what what it also spoke to is that, you know, power will 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 do anything. Yes. Right. That's right. And it was had to do with the Vietnam War, right. which was going on then. So like the, the weird thing to me, like I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you and I guess what I'm trying to get in my head is that people like Ken Keyes, who wrote Cuckoo's Nest and, and was this you know spectacular uh, uh, bigger than life character in my head. Tim Leary uh, was like so larger than life to me, you know, as a young man. And then, you know, as his myth grew that, you know, you were sitting here with these people, you know, like just like me and you were sitting Lenny Bruce as well. And I guess there's some part of me that wants to think that they have superhuman powers, but they're just people. Right. Yeah, but they were, well, I'll tell you, because uh, this goes back to uh, uh, crossing the line uh, between objectivity and subjectivity. Yeah. Uh, because I was writing something, and Abby was writing something on Revolution for the Hell of It. I thought that was a great title. Yeah. And so um, uh, we had this meeting on the afternoon of December 31st, 1966, and, uh, at Abby and Anita's house. And... Uh, I, as, as a as a journalist, I knew that you had to have a who for the who, what, when, where, and why. And so I was could feel some kind of brainstorm coming on. I went into into their bedroom to try and think of of what would work. And um, it had to be, you know, the the, the hippies had um, uh, become radicalized. Uh, and, and I was giving a name to a phenomenon that already existed, you know, mm -hmm. because they would go, because there were the straight people, politicos who wore suits and ties and had short hair, and there were the hippies who, uh, uh, who started, they started out at, in an adversarial relationship, but then we saw them at anti-war rallies and at civil rights demonstrations, and there was a kind of cross-fertilization that took place. Between Hayden's crew, which was the uh, SDS? Uh, uh, yeah, and, uh, and, and the others, uh, the res respectable groups. Right. Uh, because they, you know, the hippies thought that the politicos were uh, uh, f fading into the administration's hands by even recognizing this By war. playing on the same game. By uh, playing in the same, yeah. uh, like by thinking there was negotiable. They were centrists or the equivalent of centrists. Yeah. And on the other hand, the Straight politicos thought that the hippies were being irresponsible by just uh, having a smoking in the park until they realized that uh, they were committing an act of civil disobedience against an unjust law, the marijuana law. And the kids dug it. Uh, yeah. And, uh, the, uh, and, and the hippies began to understand that uh, what was going on in Vietnam was, you know, that, ar that arresting kids here for smoking a flower, as Lenny called it, yeah. uh, uh, that the ultimate extension of that dehumanization in order to do that was happening when they were dropping napalm on kids on the other side of the globe, and they saw that connection. And that's what the yippies were about, but with humor. Phil Oaks summed it up. Uh, Phil Oaks was a, uh, a folk singer who was yeah. one of the most political folk singers around, and witty, and, 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 and a good musician. And he summed it up when he said a demonstration should turn you on, not turn you off. And, and so uh, when I came up with the names Yippies, uh, I, well, I started with, uh, with something that would lead to, to Yippies because it rhymed with hippies. 
and and I started going, you know, kids international federation no keef you know i thought yeah. that but that was kind of corny and, yeah. and contrived yeah. uh, but then i came up uh, with yip because why that would perfectly organically be called the yippies from out of yip mm-hmm. and so then i just had to add words uh, you know proper words and and it came you know like like a flash one why would be for youth because what was going on then was essentially a, a, a youthful revolution uh I for international because it was happening in Mexico, Czechoslovakia, Paris. Mm-hmm. It really was worldwide, mm-hmm. and party in both senses of the word. You know, uh, political party and party. Yeah, and um, and so then when we heard held our first press conference, um, uh, uh, as the yippies. Uh, there were headlines in the Chicago papers, you know, yipes, the yippies are coming. Uh-huh. And so it was uh, um, manipulation of the media. But it was mutual because if we gave them good quotes, they would give us free publicity for demonstrations that they were going to be at. It's interesting to me that, that Abby you know, had this you know, innate respect for Lenny Bruce and that they were both sort of manic, Jewish, intelligent, charismatic dudes yeah, yeah. Who, who really saw the power of humor to blow minds. Well, interestingly enough, uh, it went when uh, the diggers in San Francisco, yeah. uh, 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 which was kind of like an uh, anarchistic Mary Worth group, you know, they, they served food to the people in the park, they had events, and, um, and they had a garage called the Free Frame of Reference, and I, I expected to see, a, they had big posters at that time, you know, like uh, four feet by five feet. And I expected to see one of Tim Leary there, but they had a poster of Lenny Bruce. Sure. And so, so he was he was like articulating uh, their consciousness. Well, I think he set this sort of standard. He seemed to to open the door, the realist as well, to to this idea that you know freedoms were being infringed upon. You know, on not only a legal level, but also on the level of of how the media and how the the politics and the cultural tone was really keeping people self-censoring and also, you know, censoring on other ways. So yeah. to push that envelope, it just seems that the natural legacy of Lenny and, and, and you sort of you know, managed to sort of live through all of it is that, you know, Abby said, look, you know, if we become a spectacle and we push the same buttons Lenny Bruce was pushing with with pure political intent by being, you know, you know, clowns for the most part and, and thinking of these elaborate pranks that I think you helped uh, think of as well, uh, whether it was, um, you know, wearing the, the American flag or didn't they run a pig uh, yeah, for office that. and that, you know, that it would, you know, it may not be definable to the status quo, but the kids would be like, they're sticking it up the ass of the power mm-hmm. that the powers that be and they're identifying us as someone with power. Yeah. Well, a good example of that connection that you're talking about is um, I had told Abby about uh, once when Lenny was in, in the courthouse and all the reporters were chanting, you know, do you believe in obscenity? Do you believe in obscenity? And he say what? Uh, and he ran into the bathroom and and took uh, pieces of paper towel and yeah. wet them and, and spelled out in the mirror, fuck, yeah. on his forehead. Yeah. So that he would go out there figuring, well, okay, they're not going to take my photo now because it says fuck. Yeah. So I told that story to, to Abby. And when we were in Chicago, uh, Abby decided to do that. Uh, and he had uh, 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 a friend who she, she put lipstick. She wrote it in lipstick on his forehead. Fuck. Yeah. And uh, so uh, we, when we went outside, we were going to go out for breakfast. Mm-hmm. And waiting across the street 
from where we were staying was a, a, a police car with the two, uh, a, a plain clothes car yeah. with two plain clothes guys who uh, were following us everywhere. And, um, and so Abby made the mistake of tipping his hat to them. <laughs> and so, you know, maybe a half hour later when we're having breakfast, uh, they came in and arrested him. They said, take off your hat. He yeah. said, no. And they, they flipped his hat off and there was fuck. And they said, okay. And they uh, ar- arrested him. And he didn't want it. He said, no, it's the duty of a revolutionist to finish his breakfast. <laughs> but they, they weren't convinced. And, and they left and they forced me to finish his breakfast. Uh-huh. And who bailed him out? Uh, oh, he got bailed out. I don't remember specifically who. And this was for the this was for the protest for the '68 convention. This was in Chicago during during the convention. Yeah, now, wasn't the, like? Did you get a sense that in the midst of all this shit, that this was crazy? That like every fucking five seconds there were cops coming around. That someone was going to get busted in your crew. You didn't know whether you're going to get your heads rammed in. Well, I mean, wasn't there a menace? Well, Abby wrote a a, a piece for the Realist saying, we, you know, that there, there, there there might be police violence because you've been to other rallies and, and seen it happen. And um, so, um, and there was. It was crazy. Yeah, we went. We went to Chicago before the convention, right. months before, to try and get a, a a permit for the revolution. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know, just for for kids to sleep in the park. Right. Uh, and uh, and you know, we said, had arguments. You know, you permitted the Boy Scouts to sleep in the park. Uh, we're trying to avoid any confrontation, and. Um, and I remember uh, we had the meeting in, in uh, Mayor Daly, uh, his assistant, David Stahl. Uh, as we were getting up to, go, to, to leave, uh, he said to me, come on, what, uh, what do you really want to do in Chicago? And I said, well, didn't you ever see um, Wild in the Streets? Yeah. And this was about uh, uh, a bunch of adolescents taking over the government. Right. You know, uh, they put acid into the water supply, mm-hmm. and they passed a law uh, allow, uh, lowering the vote to 14 years old. Uh-huh. And um, so the deputy, the mayor's deputy assistant says to me, uh, oh, we've seen Wild in the Streets. Uh, we've seen Battle of Algiers. And uh, Battle of Algiers uh, was... Yeah, I've seen that li- film about the French resistance. Yeah, like a, but in black and white, made to look like yeah. a uh, kind of documentary, yeah. really. And there was one scene in there where their, uh, women are crossing the border uh, in their burqas, and so you, uh, you couldn't... Maybe you could see their eyes. And, and uh, you know, sexism made the, the security people not even think that women could do anything like that. But they had bombs under their burqas. Right. And then uh, the camera uh, takes, there's a cafe, and you can see little kids eating ice cream, knowing that they're going to be blown up in a few minutes along with everybody else. And so um, that's what, what their police force was, was convinced was going to happen. You know, they were, right. uh, that, and so what happened in Chicago was a, uh, a clash between our rhetoric and their rhetoric. Uh, but God, but, a lot of heads got bashed in, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, but the thing is that um, uh, there was a biker who um, offered to be Jerry Rubin's bodyguard and he was very flattered and he said, sure. And and, uh, so he had a beard and a leather jacket and all that. But when the trial, the conspiracy trial came, it turned out he was a police informer and provocateur. Uh, he was clean shaven now, and his name was uh, Bob Pearson. This was a Chicago Seven trial. Uh, yeah, Chicago Eight, counting Bobby uh, Seals. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then he himself wrote for uh, uh, a 
uh, some detective magazine, Bob oh, really? Pearson, yeah. saying how he was the one who helped and uh, lower the American flag. Uh, he was the one who taunted and threw things at the cops. They mm-hmm. didn't recognize him, even mm-hmm. though. Uh, and um, and that was the the, the tipping point uh, for the cops to to, to go in with the battle uh, with their oh right. so Jerry Rubin's bodyguard was a, an informer prov- provocateur who sent the signal to start the beatings. Well, I, it wasn't so much that he was sending a signal because they didn't know he was a provocateur. No, they, but they, I mean, but the cops did. The cop no no the cops didn't know. Oh, uh, but uh, they 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 but he was throwing rocks at them and and cursing. So he started the shit. Yeah. Oh, isn't that something? Yeah, and so and that's why uh, uh, the official uh, report on 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 violence in America it was a government thing. They concluded in their report, the Walker report, uh, that it was a police riot that happened there. So it's just interesting. So the Chicago Seven trial, which were the Chicago Eight trial, uh, you know, that brought up a, a lot of the stuff around the American flag. And they and they they bound Bobby Seals up, and and you know he sort of was uh, completely censored, <laughs> uh, literally. Yeah. You know they were shackled to a chair yeah. and and uh, a gag stuffed in his mouth and taped over it. It was one of the most shocking uh, uh, scenes. With people hear that today, they, they don't believe that could happen in an American in, in court. An American room. court. Yeah. And what? Why did they do that to him? Uh, because his his lawyer was was sick. And he wanted, uh, uh, and he wanted to defend himself, mm. and they wouldn't let him. He's, the, the judge said that he should, he had to uh, uh, go with Bill Kunstler and Lenny Weinglass, the lawyers who were handling other defendants, and he didn't want it. He either wanted his own lawyer or to do it, or to, and he and he was shouting, "I have the constitutional right to defend myself," and 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 they uh, shut him down like that. Th- they shut him down literally. That that just shows to me, like at that time, that whatever you guys were doing. And it's the same, not so much with Lenny in the, in the, uh, in, earlier than that, was that they were frightened. I mean, that the legal system was frightened of you guys, and the government was frightened of you guys. Well, because they didn't know what was, you know, after, after I uh, uh, said that we... Did, when Christ, you, they did, killed kids at Kent State. I mean, this is all happening in the same few in years. In 1970, they did, yeah. Uh, and this was just three years before that. Yeah. Uh, um, but, y- you know, the, um, my line about, did you see Wild in the Streets... Where the, and I didn't say it, but the, where they threw LSE into the water supply, they then assigned National Guard to guard the reservoirs. Right, and that became a real thing to them. They, that, that yeah, was they thought happen. that we might do it. Yeah. They didn't, nobody want, it was all, you know, they didn't want to take the responsibility if it did happen. It didn't. We didn't throw acid yeah. in the water. And it even became a, um, um, uh, remember, Trivial Pursuits, and they had one for the 60s. And one, yeah. of, one of the questions was, uh, whose idea was it to to put water to put acid, acid in in the uh, uh, water supply in Chicago during the convention, and the answer was moi. Yeah, <laughs> you did it. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. you know. There you are on the card, Paul Krasner. Yeah, official, official. But it seemed to me that you know, without engaging in the conspiracy theories, that the yippies, the hippies, you know, uh, Hayden's organization, and and everything you guys did did you know change public opinion. Uh, about the Vietnam War, and I think did you know sort of hasten uh, the end of it? Is that do you believe that? Well, it's it's hard to know. I mean, I think the Viet Cong should get some credit. <laughs> uh, yeah. But so uh, you know, but th- there was input in terms of uh, uh, you know that the slogan uh, became the whole world is watching when they saw what they were doing. 
But that yeah. was you guys. I mean, that yeah, yeah that you were able to change yeah. from the, that. There was that shift. Oh, yeah, it was not just the war because it, it influenced people in terms of music and everything. Yeah, yeah, that it was everything that, was changing. That like there the, was another way. Eisenhower's America was like being dismantled yeah. completely. In fact, you know, the, the the most feedback I got and still get from uh, uh, people who were subscribers to the Realist was it changed my life. It woke me up. Right. Nothing was ever the same. I I couldn't trust the government again. Uh, and from uh, my favorite of that uh, was from George Carlin, who said that he was doing all, you know, the weatherman and all these characters. And he said every month that the realist came, it challenged him to go a, f- uh, a step further, to peel off another layer. And, uh, and that uh, it inspired him to be, to, 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 that if I, if I could do it in the realist, he could do it on stage, which was to say what he really felt and not try to cater to a particular audience. And, um, and that, that, that is what is, I didn't, I didn't make money off The Realist, but, but that was so gratifying, coming from Carlin, because he's influenced so many people, not just comics, but people, sure. again, who were awakened by his uh, uh, satire. Right. Because, you know, a good, good satire holds the truth within it, sort of like a... Um, Pasta fazool, you know, yeah. every macaroni has its own bean. Yeah, and right. S- and so uh, they would laugh at it, and the moment they're laughing, especially an audience, they're unified by accepting that truth uh, in, in the guise of a joke. And their mind might be blown in that moment yes. to, change, to, to completely think, to, to think about things in a different way. And that, you know, Lenny, to you, to Abby, but also Lenny, to George Carlin, to Richard Pryor, that, you know, he set a sort of template that type of honesty yeah yeah it was all uh you know they had different styles so so lenny just uh uh developed stuff on stage and and something that would be start with as a throwaway line right could develop into a whole bit whereas george carlin wrote everything down meticulous and memorized it but what they both had in common and also richard Pryor, uh were that they were self-educated Right. You know, they didn't but, let their education be spoiled by higher learning. <laughs> Good for them. But I also think I believe that, you know, if you listen to the point where, where Richard Pryor did what Lenny did was, you know, mid-career said, you know, I got to get real uh, for whatever reason that I think that those early albums where Richard Pryor is just becoming Richard Pryor. He literally has a Lenny-ish kind of cadence. It was clear to me that he listened to Lenny and that like even me, you know, it took me years to really sort of understand Lenny Bruce and even when I read The Realist that you guys are talking on a number of levels that you don't see that type of writing anymore and you certainly don't hear that kind of comedy anymore I mean if you listen to the Berkeley concert you gotta listen yeah oh that yeah and and those still exist on 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 albums one thing before I get too far away from it now you gave Groucho Marx acid oh yeah the the background of that is that uh, Otto Preminger who was one of the um uh people that Tim Leary turned on Mm mm-hmm uh, uh, that he did a picture uh, photo, a uh, 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 movie in 1967 or 68 called Skidoo. And it was about uh, a hippie who gets, uh, goes to prison and uh, his girlfriend sends him a letter that's been soaked in liquid acid and he puts it into the water supply of the prison. A lot of water supplies being... Yeah, yeah. I know. It seems to be a pattern. Yeah, yeah. And um, the... And it... And... Um, you know, there was kind of simplistic things. So one guy said, oh, I feel de- I'm never going to rape anybody again. I, you know, right. uh, just simplistic. But also, uh, it, was, it was essentially pro-acid. Mm-hmm. The, the movie was, because, you know, uh, because it made people uh, 
be introspective about their own lives yeah. and, and not and not be uh, and also freak out and per, uh, perhaps you know fall off the deep end occasionally. Well, something. Well, they just were looking at uh, at, at crazy colors while people were escaping. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so Groucho Marx originally George Raft was going to play the part of God, a mafia chieftain, but mm-hmm. uh, he couldn't do it for some reason. And they, at the last minute, they got Groucho to play God. Um, he thought it would be good on his resume. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and be. And so he he had read the realist and gave a blurb for uh, one of my first books, uh-huh. uh, saying, by the way, that uh, I would turn out to be uh, the last live Lenny Bruce, which <laughs> you know. It, uh, and so um, um, when I, when I went out there, um, uh, uh, I had dinner with him, and he asked me if I could get him some good LSD. He was, you know, without saccharin or arsenic or whatever they put in it. And I said yes, and then, he, and then he invited me to accompany him on the trip. And I did not play hard to get. Yeah. And um, so uh, we arranged to have it at uh, uh, this home of a, uh, a- an actress. Um, and the, um, I was used to, to, to playing uh, uh, rock and roll when I tripped. But the, the only albums that, that, ha- that she had in this house was... Um, um, Broadway shows and um, and um, <laughs> classical music. A bad trip. And so, like, so played those. I was uh, uh, playing the um, um, the Bach Cantata Number no. Seven. Uh-huh. And Groucho says at one point, "How come I'm supposed to be Jewish and I'm seeing these beautiful visions of Gothic cathedrals?" <laughs> and, and I said, "Oh, I'm, that's funny. I was seeing honeybees making honey. It's very subjective." So you tripped with Groucho. How long? About what? You spent eight hours bouncing oh, off no, the wall. Oh no, not eight hours. No, no. It was uh, several. I don't, I don't remember exactly how. Did long Did he have a good time? Me. Oh yeah. You know, he was. He went into to urinate at one point, and he comes back. He says, "You know." The whole human body is a goddamn miracle. <laughs> and um, oh, then played a, a song from uh, th- this this Broadway play called Fanny with Ezio Pinza. These are uh-huh. all outdated references. Yeah, sure. But I was having uh, I was being channeled by Dennis Miller. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Even before him, but yeah. Uh, and uh, and so there was a song in there called Welcome Home, and. Uh, you know, it says, welcome home, says the chair. Welcome home, says the picture, you know. Yeah. And he started doing his Groucho Marx walk there, you know, saying hello to the table. Hello uh-huh, to... Uh-huh. Uh, uh, uh-huh. And, and it was very charming. And then there was one point where his eyes began to tear up. And he said, I'm, I'm crying, but I'm not sad. Uh, and, uh, and we talked about um, the, uh, his, his TV show, You Bet Your Life. And he said his favorite uh, contestant was an elderly gentleman who uh, was very chipper. And I asked him, what makes him so happy? And yeah. uh, I, being Groucho, asked yeah. him. And he, and he said, well, every morning he gets up and he makes a decision to be happy that day. And Groucho said he was charmed by that because he didn't think of it as, as a matter of choice. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's true. Yeah. Now, didn't you, did, now, didn't you like, when you were hanging out with Keezy or Cassidy or Abby or Leary, or, you know, uh, this Groucho sounds like a good experience. And weren't there any freakouts? I mean, come on, there must have been one freakout. I mean, bad trips. Uh, oh, well, a- Abby had one at Woodstock uh, when uh, he, he was tripping on acid, and uh, he wanted to go on stage with the message that, 
John Sinclair, John Sinclair uh, was the manager of the MC5, which, right, was, the, which the, after the White Panthers. Yeah, the, yeah that's right. That's yeah. right. He and um, uh, MC5 was in Detroit and stood for Motor City Five, mm-hmm. and um, uh, he had been uh, given ten years uh, for two joints, and uh, and Abby wanted to go on and say that's the politics behind all the music, and uh, but he went on uh, while the Who was on. Uh-huh. And uh, 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 Peter Townsend smashed him in the head with his guitar, uh, and um, and said, "Get the fuck off my stage!" And there was the beginning of punk rock. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, uh, it was yeah, that was the changing early, of the guard. Yeah, man. early tremors. Yeah, really, the channels of communication and information were were, were limited. You know, you had three networks, uh, and you really sort of like in order to punch through into the news. I mean, you really had to punch through, and there were no. There was Mad Magazine. There was no satire magazine for adults. There was, this was before Spy, before National Lampoon. But I guess my question is that, you know, and outside of, you know, Bill Hicks and, and you know, Stan Hope to some degree, and, you know, in terms of humorous, or, you know, Bill, you know, didn't get you know, truly popular and understood until he died, except by a few, you know, you know uh, people who were loyal early on. And, you know, he was radically angry and, and very intelligent. And now it just seems that everything is very easily co-opted and that the sort of the trick that you once played, you know, in terms of like, is it real? Is it not real? No longer fucking matters to anybody almost. And that the prank, the, the ability to pull a prank off becomes limited and, and usually pranks are done just for prank's sake. And that I guess that, you know, the, the type of activism that you did and the type of discourse it created in the culture, it almost seems impossible to, to manufacture that now on a human level. But it, it, you know, it, it evolves along with everything else. The okay. nature, nature of protest uh, uh, and organizing uh, changed completely when, when uh, the Internet uh, appeared on the scene. Um, and, and so it has many different forms. This, 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 what I refer to as the spirit of Yippie, uh, everything from, um, um, well, the, the best example is, is the WikiLeaks. Yeah, you, that is a know, great example. Because we had button, we had but, lapel buttons that we wore in the '60s. One was uh, "The information is free." The other said "No secrets," because the basis of the secrets that they're revealing is, and they're trying to get him into a, a conspiracy. Those were the conspirators. He's revealing the conspiracy. Well, it's very interesting because that, more than anything else, you know, more than Stewart or anybody else, or even Hicks to a certain degree, what that guy did with the WikiLeaks and how they're treating it, you know, the media globally. That is that is closer to what Lenny and Abby did than anything I've seen in the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah. But they can't put the genie back in the bottle. I mean, that shit was real. You know, uh, uh, and and there's so much stuff in it. Uh, What was really interested me was the fact that the United States took credit for a bombing that Yemen actually did. And it was like um, it reminded me of um, when Andy Young, who was an assistant to John Edwards, that he said he was the one who knocked up uh, the mistress of John Edwards. <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. You know. Well, that's always gone on is that, you know, you got these provocateurs, these shills, these payoff people, these, uh, you know, believers uh, who are willing to do anything to undermine the truth. And, and that, you know, government sponsor that. That, you know, it, it really, I haven't really wrapped my head around it, but I guess for you in the last, 
you know, uh, you know, decade or so, you know, has this WikiLeaks been the sort of like, you know, you know now we're on to something moment that maybe, you know, th- that the spirit still exists? Or do you see this in smaller things as well? Because I have to assume that at some point being involved with what you were involved with, the idea was to, you know, to blow the minds of everybody and change this, you know, turn the ship around. So everyone's not getting fucked one way or the other oh, by the government and by corporations. Oh, well, all right. The best example that comes to mind is uh, 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 the Yes Men. You know their work? Yeah, they're great. All right. They, they, they have brilliantly thought out and, uh, uh, and executed uh, pranks that, yeah. that have gotten worldwide attention. Activism through satire. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, satire in and of itself, if it's done well, is activism uh, on some level. That's because true. it's designed to reveal the truth. Look, it all starts with consciousness. And if good satire is uh, one vehicle for expanding consciousness, then it's important work. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you talking, Paul. Well, uh, you know how I, I've, I've watched how the language evolves. And, you know, people used to say thank you. Yeah. Or they say you're welcome. And yeah. then uh, when they were being thanked by a, a TV show host. Yeah. And then, and then that became, uh, after a while, no problem. And then it was my pleasure. Uh-huh. And now I think it's thanks for having me. Okay. Uh, well, thanks for being had. <laughs> but I want to tell you that, that, that this has been uh, uh, really stimulating for me, and I, and I appreciate it. Okay, cool, man. Okay, well, that was a little journey through time. I hope you enjoyed that. That was actually a journey through time as an interview and a journey through actual the desert through the actual desert for me so that's it and i just want to say go to wtfpod.com for all your wtf pod needs get on that mailing list go buy a new mug we got the kitty cat mug and the pow i just shit my pants mug did i say that pow i just shit my pants i didn't do it today because i was in the car or maybe i did do it now i can't remember but anyways wtf pod for all that stuff you can also go to WTFPodshop.com and get the premium episodes. We got the dirty one. We got the nerdy one. We got a couple of other ones. And now you can get Carlos Mencia parts one and two there, along with Robin Williams. Uh, that interview, we will be uploading more interviews to that site. Get the app, the WTF app. Obviously, with all the app upgrades, you get to stream all the old episodes. So that's something, ain't it? Hells yeah. All right. I got to go. I'm tired.